Welcome to The Reference Desk, a podcast where two librarians take you down the rabbit hole of the topics that have bewitched us. So adjust the chain on your reading glasses, button up your favorite cardigan, and follow us punk-ass book jockeys through the stacks to The Reference Desk. Welcome to The Reference Desk. I'm Katie. And I'm Haley. And this is our 873rd (laughs) attempt of... Part two of the Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571. We've attempted to record this for what, numerous the past times. Month, mm-hmm. <laughs> literally, That's what it feels like. Yeah, and then we finally thought we recorded it, but my microphone was stupid, so we're re-recording it. So, full disclosure: Katie has heard this before. <laughs> so, but I'm going to try my best to react like I haven't. <laughs> Yeah, so this is seriously a cursed episode. I think maybe it was just waiting because it's snowing for both of us right now. So mm-hmm. maybe it was just waiting for some snow. I think that's it. Yeah, must be. <laughs> oh, man. So I don't even, where were we? Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571, of course, was carrying a, a rugby team. Rugby? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's been so long. It has been so long. But their plane crashed in the Andes. They have heard over the radio that the search has been called off. No one is coming to look for them anymore. And they are out of food. And so they have made the very difficult decision to begin eating the dead to survive. I think that's where we are. Great. Great. That was a beautiful recap. (laughs) Hopefully. Thanks for reminding me of all of those things. (laughs) You're so welcome. (laughs) Everything is great. (laughs) Okay, so over the next few days, the survivors continued their chores because they all, you know, set up little chores to keep them busy. And this now included processing the meat of the dead. They would dry the meat in the sun, which made it more palatable. But when the supply of flesh was diminished, they also ate hearts, lungs, and brains. So they were really using the whole body. I mean, you gotta. Gotta. Yeah. Yeah. It's not only is that just like good ethical practice, but (laughs) they have no idea how long they'll have to do this for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because it's already been a couple weeks at this point. Mm -hmm. More than a couple weeks, I think. I don't remember, but it's been a long time. And they Uh, have like, they still have a big group of boys at this point, right? They do. I think at this point they have like 30 left, somewhere around there. Like it's a big, like there was 45 that survived originally, I believe. And there are, I think they're at like 30-ish something now. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's been so long. Like, no, I don't mean to be disrespectful. Oh, no. I'm just thinking that's like, that's a lot of people to feed. Yeah. Yeah. Even when you have, you know, these bodies that you've decided to use, Mm -hmm. still, it's not like they're feasting by any means not at all no they're still rationing you know very strictly yeah so each morning they would get up and tidy the cabin that they slept in they had cabin of the plane not like they didn't build a cabin (laughs) i don't oh okay (laughs) so they had been so much happier right i'm thinking of the show that I'm in love with that started this whole thing and I can't remember what it's freaking called. Yellow Jackets. Yellow Jackets. Uh, okay. Because I was thinking Little House on the Prairie. So 
Yeah, Yellow Jackets, they had a cabin. Rugby players did not. So they had arranged the seats of the plane outside of the fuselage like deck chairs. So the first survivors to wake up would sit um, in the chairs melting snow for drinking water. And then they would rotate in and out of the plane so that no one was exposed to the elements for too long. The stronger of the survivors were tasked with covering the dead with snow to help preserve them. And they were kind of creating their own little society and grasping at some semblance of normalcy because they don't know how long they are now going to be here. Right. The group was also finally considering sending some of the survivors to look for help. Nando had already offered to go, even going as far as to say that he'd go by himself if he had to. No, Uh, Nando. No. No. Absolutely not. No. But team captain Marcello said, quote, we must think this out calmly and act together. It's the only way we'll survive. The group agreed that the strongest of them, which was Gustavo Zerbino, who was one of the medical students, Numa Turcati, Danielle Masbones, the three of them would head up the mountain to get a better idea of their location to at least see if they could figure out where in the world they were. They followed the track of the plane up the mountain and had to rest nearly every 25 steps. Oh, my God. Yeah. They only had sneakers or moccasins um, and, like, sweaters and light jackets because they were going, you know, not in the Andes. (laughs) Right. They were going somewhere much warmer to go play rugby and go, you know, out on the town. So those are the types of clothes they had. Sure. So by nearly seven in the morning with the sun setting, no, seven in the evening (laughs) with the sun setting, they were only halfway up the mountain. The trio discussed turning back, but decided to push ahead, attempting to locate like an outcrop of rocks to shelter in for the night. Their hope was to make it to the tail of the plane to locate batteries that might be useful for the plane's two-way radio. Oh, God. How did they Um, think of these things? I don't know. Like, they had already managed to fashion a radio that, you know, was just picking up signals. Mm -hmm. That's how they had found out that, you know, the search was called off, but this was the two-way radio. So this was like, this could help them for sure. Yeah, that would be a huge find. Yeah. Um, They found a place for a makeshift shelter, but the cold was brutal. I was outside in the snow with Finn today for 20 minutes, and I thought I was dying. So, (laughs) and it was barely even on the ground. Like, it it was coming down, and he wanted to go play in it, but like... I was dying. I was like, let's go in. I'm I'm done. And you like knew <laughs> what you were preparing for. I was in a parka. <laughs> like <laughs> I, and I was still like, I'm done. So I can't even I can't. It's just no. it's awful. Awful, awful, awful. None of them thought that they were gonna make it through the night. They thought that that was it. And then the sun rose the next morning and they were all still alive. They had to take off their wet clothes and wring them out because they were drenched. And then they dressed again and headed, you know, back up the mountain. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I hate it so much. Yeah. Yeah. Every now and then they paused to look at the plane behind them and realize that there was 
no possibility of being seen from the air. Like no one was going to find them that way because of where the plane was. Finally, they found the broken pieces. They found some broken pieces of the plane. They found a plane seat that was upside down in the snow. And when they carefully removed it, they found a body still attached. Yeah. So Zerbino carefully removed the wallet containing the ID card as well as a chain of holy metals from the neck. And as they searched further, they were able to find five of the six teammates and crew who were flung from the plane initially. So when the tail broke off, they had, you know, been sucked out. Mm-hmm. So they found five of them. Oh, my God. Yeah. So just the- fresh trauma mm-hmm. on top of what they're already going through. Yeah. They were unable to locate Valletta, who had survived being flung from the plane, but, you know, seemingly in a daze had, you know, run off into the snow and he had fallen and presumably asphyxiated. (sighs) It's not a funny word. It's It's just not. It's just just one of those words. (laughs) I can't say it. Archipelago. (laughs) Archipelago. I don't know. It, that's a weird. It's, <laughs> sometimes words just don't look right. They really don't. Uh, so the three continued searching, but they never found the tail of the plane and they didn't find anything useful. Zerbino had lost a shoe and his feet were so numb he hadn't even noticed. Oh, my God. <sighs> and so they were they returned back to the main part of the plane. The rest of the survivors were shocked at their condition when they returned. Their feet were frozen. Their eyes were continuously watering. It was only a single day expedition and it had almost killed them. I cannot believe that they didn't like lose limbs from Mm -hmm. frostbite. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Mm -mm -mm. The survivors continued on working jobs in teams. So Knessa checked with those who had been the most seriously injured because there is a few somehow still surviving. He would bring them meat and then tend to their injuries while the most while most of the superficial wounds and broken bones were, you know, healing as best as they could under the circumstances. The more serious injuries were troubling because we, we have a few you know, very serious injuries. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking back to. There were uh-huh. some very unpleasant things that did not seem survivable. No, like Raphael Echeverin, whose calf had been basically removed and wrapped around his leg. Ugh. Yeah, so he, he was now showing signs of gangrene. Enrique Platero, he was the guy with the metal pole in his stomach who pulled it out and then asked how he could help. Like yeah, just kind of poked his innards back in. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh my god! He's like, eh, "What can I do to help?" Like, sit down, man. That's yeah. what you can do. Jesus, <sighs> unbelievable. So he he mentioned to Knessa that though he was feeling great, he was feeling fine. There was like a little piece of of his insides that was still sticking out, <sighs> and he could maybe Knessa just take a look, you know. You know, not to trouble him or anything, but not not top priority. Just when you have a minute, can just take a look. (laughs) (laughs) So Knesset thought that he would be able to help if he kind of cut away some of the dead skin to like 
push whatever was sticking out back in. But he was also concerned that if what was sticking out was intestine, if he nicked it, you know, Enrique would get peritonitis and he would die. Like, terrible game over, no fixing that where they are. That's certain death. But Enrique told him, go ahead, give it a shot. So Canessa was able with whatever tools he had made out of like plastic and glass. I don't know. Oh my God. He was able to successfully push it back in and wrapped up the wound. And Enrique said, now I'm ready to go on an expedition. Oh my God. No. No, you're not. <laughs> Oh, but I'm sure at this point, like, anything sounds preferable to being in this airplane yeah. cabin for one more day. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Airplanes are one of the most miserable places to be in general. No. Oh, God. <clears throat> oh, my God. I mean, I get, like, panicky and angry and uncomfortable if we're, like, sat on the runway for 10 minutes. <laughs> Yeah. And they're basically living in one. Mm -mm. All right. Are you ready for some more bad news? Sure. Uh, Why not? So on the morning of October 29th, after spending 17 days in the Andes, the survivors, you know, they're going on with their routines. They had managed to create hanging beds for the injured to be able to sleep better so they could kind of like sleep on t- like above everybody just like a hammock and they had begun discussing which would you know which would be potential expeditionaries who would attempt to leave and get help the mood was optimistic you know they ate lunch that day and then around four the sun seemed to dip behind the mountains to the west a little earlier than usual it became several degrees colder And so they began to head into the plane in the order that they would sleep in. So they would switch positions of who had to sleep near the entrance or the tail of the plane because those were just covered up by like packed snow and luggage and whatever they could find to kind of fill the hole. Mm -hmm. But they didn't want to make, you know, one person sleep there the whole time. So they would rotate. They really did think of everything. They really did. And the space was so cramped. They had to go into the plane, you know, the order that they were going to lie down and sleep because you can't move around in there. Mm-hmm. They, you know, took off their shoes before they got in. So they were, you know, trying their best to keep it nice and clean. And though it was still pretty early, many of them began to drift to sleep. And then suddenly there was a vibration that they all felt. And within an instant, the sound of metal falling to the ground startled them awake. Roy Harley, the one who had made the antenna for the radio and made that work, Mm -hmm. he stood up really quickly and within seconds, the entire fuselage of the plane, their home for the last 17 days was completely filled with snow with another three feet on top of the plane. No, 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 no. Because he stood up right before the avalanche, Roy Harley was able to dig himself out quickly. He then immediately started digging, searching for anyone else he could find. He was able to uncover Canessa, who then went towards the front of the cabin to start digging. He was able to pull out Fido Strouch. 
and Parado, who was sleeping in the middle of the plane between Liliana Maythal, who was an older woman who had kind of become like a nurse to the boys. And he was also next to Daniel Daniel Maspones, which was one of the first expeditionaries. Mm-hmm. He was sleeping in the middle of the plane between them. And though he he was unable to breathe after the avalanche, he remembered reading in Reader's Digest that you could survive under the snow. So he, you know, tried to take small, shallow breaths because it's super easy to think about things when you're in a Read panic. Reader's Digest. <sighs> oh, God. I hope that my brain would work that quickly. Mine would not. I needed it to. I don't, I don't want to test it. <laughs> I know. <sighs> um, so the weight on Parado's chest became unbearable and he grew dizzy, fearing that he was going to die. And he discovered a metal rod among the luggage racks. And with its help, he was able to pry open one of the pilot's cabin windows to allow air to pass through the snow. But it wasn't until October 31st, a day and a half later, were they able to dig a tunnel out to the surface. So they were just in the snow for a day and a half. Oh, my God. But then once they dug the tunnel and tried to get out, there was a blizzard. (laughs) So they just went back in. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) And And it's full of snow. Full of snow. I mean, there's like a little air pocket at the top now because some of it is melted, but the rest is just snow. They're sleeping on snow. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Snow that unfortunately now has eight newly deceased. Oh, God. Uh, so those who died in the a- avalanche were Sergeant Carlos Rock Roke, who was an aircraft mechanic. Daniel Maspones, who was the, one of the three expeditionaries and was right next to Parado. Juan Carlos Menendez, who was a 22-year-old law student. And Liliana Maythal, who was that lovely woman caring for many of the injured. Her husband, Javier, actually survived the avalanche. So now he he has to live, you know. <laughs> knowing Next that to his yes dead wife yes and Parado was in the between both of them mm. and he lived so oh, God. that's not fun for his brain no others among the deceased Gustavo who they called Coco Nikolic who was a veterinary student our dear friend Enrique Platero who was the yeah he he passed away he was the I don't want to call him the pole guy. The guy with the pole in his stomach who was just in such good spirits all the time, it seemed all like. All the time. Was just a gem of a human. Also, Diego Storm, who was another medical student. And possibly the biggest blow to them, their beloved team captain, the one who was keeping them so positive, Marcelo Perez, also died in the avalanche. Marcelo. Yeah. So because of the blizzard for three days, the remaining survivors were trapped in the extremely cramped space within the buried fuselage. They had three feet and three inches of headroom. And they were there together with the corpses of those who had died in the avalanche. They 
dug another hole in the reduced space of the cabin, which allowed them to stay seated while one person at a time could stand in the center and jump to keep their feet from freezing. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh my so God. one person at a time can jump. Sit, right? Oh uh-huh. my God. It's mm-hmm. horrendous. Mm-hmm. And with no other choice, on the third day, they began to eat the flesh of their newly dead friends. When the weather cleared on November 1st, they were able to venture outside. Six of them went outside to bask in the sun on the plane's roof, where the heat was the most intense, while Canessa and Zerbino cleared the snow from the windows to let in light to help melt the snow. And then the Strouch cousins, Daniel, Eduardo, and Adolfo, worked to melt the snow in order to get some more drinking water. It took the survivors nearly eight days to take out the dead bodies and to clean the plane. And the snow had turned to ice, and so tools had to be improvised to break it to get it out of the plane. So now there's only 19 remaining alive, and they're all absolutely desperate now to find a way home. Mm -hmm. So with their captain now dead... The three Strouch brothers, or cousins, sorry, cousins, two of them are brothers, I think, but they're all cousins, took over a leadership role as the group discussed expeditions. They also took over harvesting and rationing the meat from the dead. And since the co-pilot had claimed that they had made it over Curico, the survivors believed that they were in Chile and that maybe the countryside was just a few kilometers to the west. Hmm. The survivors set their sights on sending out expeditionaries to hike to Chile. Of course, they knew that the conditions these expeditionaries would encounter would be even more severe than what they were now experiencing. And because of this, those chosen would be given larger rations, the best places to sleep, and be excused from daily chores to prepare them for late November when hopefully the snow would melt and they or begin to melt, and they would be strong enough to walk up the mountain. So next they had to decide who was strong enough to go. Because, I mean, they're all, you know, well, most of them are strong, young men, rugby players, but they Mm -hmm. have been trapped for now over three weeks and, you know. sustained terrible injuries. Absolutely. So... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Their choices are limited now. Yeah. So first to factor in was those who were not seriously injured by the initial crash. Plus, they gave preference to those who were rugby team members, thinking that they would hopefully be a little more fit than the others. Mm-hmm. They also had to take into consideration that those who might have been strongest at the onset might not be now. They might be too weakened by their experiences. Sure. So they narrowed down the choice to Parado and Canessa, who, of course, were just like, we're going. You're not going to tell us no. <laughs> Turcati, uh, Fido Strouch, Paez, Harley, and Visentin, who they called Tintin. Oh. <laughs> the last three, though they were strong enough, the group was unsure if they had the maturity and the mental strength to make it because they were the youngest mm-hmm. or some of the youngest. So because of this, they thought it would be a good idea to give them a test run. So okay. they, yeah. Smart. Yeah. 
So they set out at 11 the following morning dressed in two pairs of every article of clothing. (laughs) And since the surface of the snow was completely frozen, it was actually easier to walk across now. The the plan was to walk towards the parts of the plane the other expeditionaries found, still looking for the tail of the plane. After walking for an hour and a half, they stumbled upon the rear door of the plane and the scattered contents of the galley. Ooh. Ooh, Uh And in that, they found an aluminum (laughs) coffee can and Coca-Cola container, as well as an empty jar of instant coffee. And so they melted snow in the containers and poured it into the coffee jar, drinking the coffee-flavored water. Because, oh, my God. Yes. I bet that tasted amazing. Absolutely. Mm. They also found a trash can, which when they emptied it, they found a few pieces of broken candy. <gasps> so That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, So they continued on. Progress became more difficult because the sun had started to melt the top layer of snow and they were now sinking in past their knees. (laughs) Oh, no. After another few hours, they decided to turn back. But because the way back to the plane was up the mountain, it was much more difficult. Mm -hmm. They had also lost their sense of direction since all they could see was snow. Yeah. Yeah. It's just... Step. Uh, mm. <laughs> so finally, after a near panic, they were able to find their way back to the plane and they made it there just after sunset. Carlitos said, it was impossible. It was impossible. And I collapsed, wanted to die and cried like a baby. Roy was shivering and crying and wouldn't speak. And Tintin said, it was tough, but possible. Mm. So. So Tintin became the choice to join the other expeditionaries. Now, if you were in this situation, would you want to go on the expedition or would you want to stay? I think I would want to stay because I don't think I could make it. <laughs> I think I would stay too. don't think I could do it. I don't think I could either. I think both of us would be far more likely to underestimate our abilities. Yes. Yes. Than to overestimate. So I oh, feel yes. like we would both be like, nope, nope, we'll we'll stay behind. Can't do that. <laughs> I don't know. I get real weird when I'm in like a stress situation though. Like I start trying to take over stuff. So I don't know. Ooh. But like right now, no. <laughs> Right now, as you're huddled in your I know least my- kitty blanket, it's a Halloween blanket. It's got a pumpkin <laughs> and a skull and a key cat. Yes, I know. I came down here without my sweater and immediately regretted it because it's a fucking basement. Mm, yeah. See, I would not last. <laughs> oh, it's not gonna happen. No, I really don't think that I would have ever made it to the point that they're at right now to begin mm-hmm. with. No. Plus, I'm really bad at, like, forcing myself to eat disgusting things, so I don't know if I could keep it down. Yeah, I don't know how much, like, just starvation takes over. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah. Mm. And I never want to find out. Nope. (laughs) I'm good. Thanks. Okay, so 
the chosen are, you know, Canessa, Parado, Turcati, and now Tintin. And so this means that they would receive more rations, they would pick where they slept, and they would be excluded from the daily chores. Though, of course, Canessa and Parado continue to do this. Of course. Temperatures begin to rise, and so the expeditionaries prepared to leave. And finally, on November 15th, they set out. Um, sadly, on that same day, Arturo Nogira passed away. So that was another member down. The expeditionaries hiked several miles east, attempting to get around a mountain west of the crash site. They found the tail of the plane mostly intact, and inside was basically paradise. They found luggage containing a box of chocolates. <gasps> they found three meat patties. Oh, my God. They found a bottle of rum, cigarettes, <laughs> extra clothes, comic books, and a little medicine. Whoa. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. I yeah. can't imagine yeah. how they felt. Yeah. And also, they found the two-ray radio. <gasps> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Best yeah. day ever. Amazing. So the trio camped out that night inside the tail, building a fire to stay warm, eating the food they found, and reading comic books. God, it's so wholesome. I know. It's just a little piece of normal. Yeah. They could pretend they're camping. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Uh, But, you know, the next day, they continued east, hiking all day. Unfortunately, that night, they had to sleep outside and almost froze to death. Yeah. So after some debate, they decided to turn around, bringing the battery they removed from the tail along with the two-way radio to attempt to contact Santiago for help. Oh, my God. I can't believe they're going back. I know. The batteries, though, were too heavy to carry back to the fuselage, so they decided the best plan was to return to the fuselage, disconnect that radio, and bring it back to the tail to connect it to the batteries. No. <laughs> Dear God, no. Yeah. God. Um, so I'm just realizing I said that wrong. They didn't find the two-way radio. They had the two-way radio. They found batteries for the two-way radio. They found, okay. Okay. Right. Gotcha. So they're trying to carry the batteries back to the other plane where the two-way radio is, but it's too heavy. So now they're thinking, go back to the plane, take out the two-way radio, mm-hmm. and bring it to the battery. Bring it to the batteries. <laughs> yeah. That's so weird that the batteries are, like, the heaviest. I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah. So uh, Roy Harley, who was an amateur electronics enthusiast, he returned to the tail of the plane to assist. And after several days of trying to make the radio work, they gave up and returned back to the fuselage with the knowledge that they would have to climb out of the mountains if they were to have any hope of being rescued. That was kind of like their last, you know, baby. But now that's it. This is their plan. On November 18th, Raphael Echeverin died from gangrene. Yeah. And also, Turcati, who had an extreme revulsion to surviving off the flesh of the dead, he just couldn't bring himself to do it much. He starved to death. He died after 60 days 
in the Andes, weighing only 55 pounds. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. My four-year-old is 30 pounds. Like, yeah, I was just trying to think. I, or I have, Rory hasn't been weighed in so long. I don't know. Yeah. But I'm sure she's got to be close to that. Yeah. I, I don't know. 55 pounds. Like, just mm. unbelievable. I feel like the bones of a grown man should weigh more than that. I don't know. Yes. So scary. Yeah. (sighs) Oh, my God. So the group now really understands that their only option is to walk over the mountains, Mm -hmm. which would not be feasible unless they could find a means to withstand the bitterly cold nighttime temperatures. The expedition members devised a plan to make some sort of sleeping bag out of copper wire, waterproof cloth that had covered the plane's air conditioning system and insulation from the back of the fuselage. Okay. I mean. Once it was completed on December 12th, 61 days after the crash, Parado, Canessa, and Tintin set off again to find help climbing the 15,000-foot peak. Oh, my God. Ah. Oh, my God. This is like (laughs) National Geographic professional mountain climbers terrain. I know. And they're doing it in tennis shoes and probably a lot of polyester because it was the 70s. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It's awful. Oh, my God. With the sun softening the snow, they sank down to their hips as they walked. Oh, God. They believed that they would arrive at the summit in a single day. It was very challenging for all of them, not only because of the snow, but because of the thin, low oxygen air. Oh, yeah. Um, as they climbed. Parado took the lead and the other two frequently had to encourage him to slow down because he was going to gas himself out. Classic Parado. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's like, I am doing this. <laughs> See, I think that's in like a stressful situation. I get like that too. So I'm like, I would just like overdo myself real quick. I don't know. Or maybe you'd be a Parado. I don't know. It started to storm at nightfall because, of course, it did. And they had difficulty finding a place to put the sleeping bag, but eventually they found a rock ledge. <laughs> rock ledge. Canessa describes this first night as the worst of his life. Jesus. So. Worse than sleeping next to a bunch of dead people in mm-hmm. a snow-packed airplane cabin. Yep. Cool. When the morning finally broke, they slipped their swollen feet back into their icy shoes and headed out again. The second day on that sheer drop was much harder than the first. Oh, how is that possible? (laughs) I know. They found themselves at the foot of an almost vertical wall covered in snow and ice on the third morning of their ascent. Good. Great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so Nando, you know, Parada, he had no choice, of course, but to climb. So he carved stairs in the wall with a stick that he, from his rucksack. Oh my God. And oh my God. they limped up painful, 
you know, each painful step by painful step. Knessa had to go back because he couldn't make it and he stayed back with all their gear. And they reached the peak many hours later. Oh my God. In his book, Alive, the story of the Andy survivors, which I believe was the first book published about the incident in 1974, author Pierce Paul Reed talks about the trio or the duo now reaching the summit on that third day. He writes, quote, Parado's joy at having climbed it lasted for only the few seconds it took him to scramble to his feet. The view before him was not of green valleys running down towards the Pacific Ocean, but endless expanses of snow-covered mountains. From where he stood, nothing blocked his view of the vast Cordillera. For the first time, Parado felt that they were finished. So it's just more snow. Like forever and ever and ever. Forever and ever. Yeah. There's Mm -hmm. no point of reference for them. I would Mm-mm. vault myself into the sun. <laughs> I don't think so at this point. It's just like, never mind. Oh Sorry. My God. So <laughs> after falling to his knees in despair, he, Parado soon, you know, began to reflect on the feat that they had just accomplished. He had climbed one of the highest mountains in the Andes. And so Parado thought that he would name the peak after his father. Oh. And I know he had a plastic bag and the lipstick that he had been using as chapstick. Oh. <laughs> and he wrote Mount Salar on the bag and he put it under a rock. So he claimed it. And then he sat back to admire the view. Because what else are you going to do now? What an incredible person. I know. Visentin, who hadn't been able to make it all the way to the peak, he had turned back and joined Canessa. He told Canessa that Parado had made it to the peak. And so Canessa reluctantly started the climb up the peak to join his friend. The two discussed their options and they came up with a plan to continue on sending Tintin back to the plane and then keeping some of his rations to split between them. Okay. Mm -hmm. They thought that they would have to convince Tintin, but when they shared the plan, he said, anything you say. (laughs) I just climbed up a vertical ice wall. Exactly. I'm good. (laughs) Yeah, you tell me to go, I go. Kanessa told him, quote, when you go back, tell the others that we've gone west. And if the plane spots you and you get rescued, please don't forget about us. Oh, my God. (sighs) So the return trip down to the plane was downhill. (laughs) And so they were able, using what, I don't know, to fashion some sort of sled. And Tintin literally slid down the mountain (laughs) And he made the entire journey back to the plane in an hour. <laughs> oh my god, it's incredible. One hour. And how many days had it taken them? Three. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. On the summit, Parado told Canessa, quote, we may be walking to our deaths, but I would rather walk to meet my death than wait for it to come to me. And Canessa agreed, saying, you and I are friends, Nando. We have been through so much. Now let's go die together. Oh, my God. (laughs) 
the most beautiful bromance. I know it. Worst situation. Terrible. <laughs> Parado and Canessa hiked for several more days. The sharp edges of windblown snow cutting their feet. On December 18th, seven days since leaving the crash site, the terrain began to shift. Mm-hmm. It can't possibly get worse. <laughs> I don't know. No. They found patches of gravel. So, no snow. They found a fast-moving stream. Oh, my God. And as they continued on, or no, they, they thought, you know, surely the stream would lead to a river. And so, they followed it. Mm-hmm. And as they continued on, the snow turned into just rocky terrain patches of grass and then finally to the river that they had hoped for oh my god i would be on my knees eating that grass like a cow Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (sighs) at this river there was moss there was grass there were flowers lizards birds it was habitation oh my god there are things now they've done not just snow i know (sighs) and to top it all off they saw evidence of camping and so they knew civilization had to be close because someone had been camping there there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so on the eighth day of their expedition they spotted a herd of cows and on the ninth day Knessa saw a man on horseback oh my god yeah unfortunately when he went to go find the man he was gone Uh, But at least he saw someone. And as they returned back to the spot that they were setting up to camp for for the night, across the river, they saw three men on horses staring at them. Yeah. 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 The men were herding cows. Canessa and Parada immediately, you know, started shouting, waving their hands, jumping up and down. They began screaming, help us, help us. But the horsemen were very frightened. Okay, fair. Yeah. And they hesitated. And one finally yelled out, tomorrow, as they rode away. Oh, my God. So. (laughs) What's another night? You know, at least they have grass now. Mm -hmm. As the sun rose on the 10th day, they noticed a fire across the river and a man standing beside it. So the man took out a piece of paper, wrote something down, tied it to a rock, and threw it across the river to Parado and Canessa. It said, there is a man coming later that I told him to go to. Tell me what you want. (laughs) I don't know if that was kind of like, I'm not by myself. Someone's coming. What do you want? Yeah. (laughs) Right? Like, (laughs) there's only one of me now, but, you know. (laughs) Which, fair. I mean, (laughs) Parado wrote back, I come from a plain that fell in the mountains. I am Uruguayan. We have been walking for 10 days. I have a friend up there who is injured. In the plain, there are still 14 injured people. We have to get out of here quickly, and we don't know how. We don't have any food. We are weak. When are you going to come fetch us? Please, we can't even walk. Where are we? Doesn't even know where they are. So he tied it to the rock, threw it back across the river. The man read the note, 
nodded in understanding, and then threw Parado a piece of bread before leaving. So he's going, presumably, to find help. He, you know, presumably, nodded in understanding, yes. gave him some bread. God, he couldn't even um, toss the rock back with like, okay, going to get help. Right? <laughs> it's like, here's some bread. <laughs> but Parado brought the bread to Knessa, who said, we're saved. Oh. Yay! God, <laughs> I just think of them like sitting on that peak after climbing that ice wall and looking down and seeing nothing but just more mountains and snow. Yeah. And it yeah. would have been so easy to make the choice to just be like, we're never going to get help. Let's just go back. Yeah. Let's go yeah. back and hope that maybe someday we're rescued. Totally. And they kept going. I just. The will to survive. I don't. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. The the man on horseback, his name was Sergio Catalan. He was a Chilean Arario who is someone who transports goods via mule. Okay. And he got help. Others returned and they were able to take Canessa and Parado by horseback where they were first taken to like peasants huts in the little tiny village where they ate copious amounts of food that was put in front of them. Yes. And they slept the afternoon away basically like the dead. <laughs> Just amazing. Well deserved. Deserve it. Yes. They deserve some rotting days. (sighs) Yes. They had hiked over 38 miles in 10 days. Knessa had lost half of his body weight and weighed 97 pounds. Oh my God. And they, you know, their biggest concern was making sure that the police were notified so that they could get help for their friends. Mm hmm. When the news broke out that the survivors, that some survivors had emerged from the crash, Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571, the story of their 72-day ordeal, of course, drew international attention. A flood of international reporters began walking several kilometers (laughs) along the route from Puente Negro to Termas del Flaco, which is the teeny town that they're in. No. They're they're in literal huts and then yeah. here comes a flood of reporters in the Andes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they were all clamoring of course to interview Parado and Canessa about the crash and the events afterwards. The Chilean Air Force provided three helicopters to assist with the rescue. They flew in very heavy cloud cover under instrument conditions just like the plane had. Great. Uh, Canessa and Parado were able to give them a detailed location of where the fuselage was was containing the rest of the survivors. How? I don't. It's I all d- just snow. <laughs> There's like no landmarks. How? I I don't understand. I can't even give directions to my own house. No, no. I met one <laughs> one of the little boys that goes to Finn's school. His mom came into the library and we were chatting and I realized that they must live in our neighborhood. And so she's like, oh, yeah, which block are you on? I could not remember the name of my cross street. (laughs) I'm on this road and um, and immediately pulled up Google Maps. Like, where do I live? (laughs) So, no, I not going to happen. Not going to happen for me. Nope. (laughs) 
Oh, and also Canessa and Parado, not both of them. Hold on. Sorry. When the fog lifted around noon, Parado volunteered <laughs> to lead the helicopters to the location. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just getting back on an aircraft and uh, yeah, going yeah. right back mm-hmm. to the crash site. Sure. He had brought the pilot's flight chart and he guided the helicopters up the mountain to the location of the remaining survivors. Oh, my God. Yes. Two helicopters carrying search and rescue teams arrived at the survivors on the afternoon of December 22nd, 1972. Oh. Yes. Yes. It's finally happening. So the pilots of the helicopters could only touch down with like a single skid because of the steep terrain. And due to the height and weight restrictions, the two helicopters could only transport half of the survivors at a time. (laughs) Cool. So, right. So four members of the search and rescue team volunteers to stay on the mountain with the seven survivors who remained and rescued that day were Jose Pedro Algorta, Daniel Fernandez, Jose Luis Inciarte, Alvaro Mangino, Carlos Paez Rodriguez, and Eduardo Strouch. Oh, my God. Eduardo Eduardo Stark. Stark. Tis Tony's (laughs) nephew. I don't know. (laughs) Yep. And then the last remaining eight survivors were rescued the following day on the 23rd. 72 days after the crash. 72 days. Oh my yeah. God. So mm-hmm. long to see. Mm-hmm. They were Alfredo Delgado, who I guess they called Poncho. <laughs> oh. <laughs> or <laughs> Roberto Francois, who they called Bobby. Roy Harley. Javier, Javier Methal. Ramon Sabella. Adolfo Strouch. Tintin and Gustavo Zerbino. So they are all off the damn mountain. Oh, thank God. Yeah. So they're, of course, immediately taken to the hospital. But those in better physical shape were able to leave the hospital, like immediately, which how doesn't seem possible. And they gathered at the San Cristobal Sheraton Hotel in Santiago on the evening of December 23rd. Harley, Inciarte, Mangino, and Methal were all in much more serious condition and they remained in the hospital. Of course, there was a continuous stream of newly arrived family and friends in Uruguay numerous phone calls coming in you know there's just a constant stream of super excited people yeah they had, i mean i'm sure that at this point the families had all like except the loss grieved probably held like funeral services yeah yeah and then they find out that some of them are still alive yeah amazing Daniel Fernandez and Roberto Francois made the decision to return to Uruguay the following day. They're like, I'm uh going home. But then also plane. No, thank you. Yeah, I would walk. Yeah. (laughs) Before I got back on a plane. Yeah. So when they were recovered, the survivors explained that they had eaten some cheese and other food that they had brought with them as well as local plants and herbs. 
they intended to discuss the specifics of their survival, including the cannibalism, with their families in private. Sure. But, of course, rumors swirled. And unfortunately, on December 23rd, news reports of cannibalism were published worldwide. Except for in Uruguay, which I guess that's good. Yeah. Yeah. But, and then on December 26th, two pictures taken by members of the Andean Relief Corps of a half-eaten human leg were printed on the front page of two Chilean newspapers. God. Like, why? That's horrific. In so many ways. Like, it's so disrespectful to whoever's leg that is. Right. Whose family probably doesn't even know who that is yet. Yes, and didn't get a chance to hear about the cannibalism from the actual teammates. After Christmas in Chile, the majority of the group's physical condition had improved and they agreed with their families that it was time to return to Montevideo and prevent any further misinformation from spreading out of context. Because this is fair. After surviving a plane crash, they should have to go on a PR tour. Right. Days after they're survived. Like, or or rescued, I mean. Like, (laughs) so they held a press conference on December 28th, because they had to, at Stella Marie College in Montevideo, which is where they played rugby. And they recounted the events of the past 72 days. Alfredo Delgado spoke for the survivors, and he compared their actions to that of Jesus at the Last Supper, during which he gave his disciples the Eucharist. A Catholic priest heard the survivors' confessions and told them that they were not damned for cannibalism, given the extreme nature of their survival situation. Which was really important because they were all very, very Catholic. Yeah. So that was big on their mind. For sure. Mm Mm-hmm. And Canessa would later go on to write, quote, cannibalism is when you kill someone to eat them. So technically, Mm. this is what is known as anthrop... I can't do it. Anthropophagy. Anthropophagy. Yes. I've had these discussions for 40 years. I don't care. We had to eat these dead bodies, and that was it. The flesh had protein and fat, which we needed, like cow meat. I was also used to medical procedures, so it was easier for me to make the first cut. It's like, stop sensationalizing this. Yeah, I don't understand what anyone's argument against what they did would possibly be. I know. None of them would be alive. None of them. It's ridiculous. Yeah. (sighs) The victims of the plane crash were not removed from the site. And their families, along with authorities, decided to bury their remains together near the crash site in a common grave. Of the remains, 13 had remained untouched, including Parado's sister and mother, who the team refused to use for food. Okay. And then 15 were mostly skeletal. Sadly, because of the location, the families were not allowed to attend the funeral services. Mm -hmm. Twelve men and a Chilean priest dug the grave. They moved the bodies and built a simple stone altar with an orange iron cross. They placed a plaque on the pile of rocks inscribed, The world to its Uruguayan brothers. Close, O God, to you. And then they doused the remains of the fuselage in gasoline and set it on fire. 
Sayonara. Yes. Ricardo Echeverin, who is the father of Eduardo Echeverin, I think, the guy with the calf, had received word from a survivor that his son said he wished to be buried at home. Um, And so unable to obtain official permission to retrieve his son's body, Echeverin mounted an expedition on his own with hired guides. He had prearranged with the priest who had buried his son to mark the bag containing his son's remains. But upon his return to the abandoned hotel Termas with his son's remains, he was arrested for grave robbing. God. Big. Ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Luckily, a federal judge and the local mayor intervened to obtain his release, and Echeverin later obtained legal permission to bury his son at home. No, you have to take him back. <laughs> right? Right? Like, oh, God. <laughs> Don't understand. In 1973, mothers of 11 of the young victims founded Our Children Library in Uruguay to promote reading and teaching. <sighs> and in 2006, other victims' families founded the Foundation Viven. Supporting organ donation and preserving the legacy of the flight and the memory of the victims. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. And all of the families had a memorial dedicated on the crash site in 2006, which was a black obelisk. And in 2013, the Andes Museum 1972 was dedicated to the survivors and the victims in Montevideo. Nando spent some time as a professional race car driver because, you know, why? Classic Nando. Yeah. (sighs) Before he got married and then he had, you know, took over his father's hardware store because, no, you're not doing that anymore. (laughs) Canessa continued in the field of medicine and he became a top pediatric cardiologist and a motivational speaker. Of course he did. So he just traveled on his own little path that he was still fighting, which is fantastic. This is a little interesting tidbit, I think. On February 10th, 2005, avid climber and mountain guide Ricardo Peña traveled to El Sonsonita, which was the community closest to the accident scene. There he got to know Edgardo Barrios, who owned the local hostel and who also was a local plane crash specialist. Barrios had been providing visits to the crash location for years, but getting there, of course, requires strenuous several hours of off-ride driving or off-road driving, followed by two days on horseback. And most tourists prefer to just look at the artifacts and souvenirs that Barrios has collected over the years. Yeah, same. Pena, who grew up hearing about the Andy survivor's stories and wanting to pay homage to his childhood heroes and see for himself the challenges that they faced, he says, quote, I hope to reach the spot where the plane hit the mountain and maybe examine Parado and Canessa's route. The following day, joined by an Argentine hiking group and a local horseman, Mario Perez, They all set off on a two-day horse ride and hike to visit the site following a similar path that Nando and Roberto would have taken, 
Pena says, quote, it's a huge valley surrounded on all three sides by massive walls. It isn't obvious that it would make a good escape route. So it's just fascinating that they did this. Just a lot of luck that they picked the right direction to walk in. Yeah. And this guy is a professional mountain climber. Like, (laughs) this is what he does. Yeah. Once they reached the burial site, the hikers paid their respects and Pena and Perez climbed toward the initial impact point several thousand feet above. As they climbed, they they began to find artifacts. They found plane parts and even a piece of plastic that had been obviously turned into some sort of knife. Mm, Perhaps used to cut some intestinal stuff. Right, yes, and stuff it back in. (laughs) (sighs) They found a roll of film, which is cool. (gasps) And when they found the obvious site of impact, they noticed a piece of blue clothing and then a piece of white clothing. Mm-hmm. And they began moving the rocks and they found a pair of corduroy pants. And I bet they were bell bottoms. Probably. <laughs> and a very 70s looking shirt and a white sweater. And when he was able to get the blue piece of clothing, he realized that it was a coat. And as he removed it from the rocks, it felt heavy. And it still had a wallet with documents inside the pocket. Oh my God. The wallet began belonged to Eduardo Strouch, one of the Strouch cousins who survived the crash. When Peña returned to El Sonsoneta, his discoveries astonished Edgardo Barrio. He says it was like finding a piece of the Titanic. (laughs) (laughs) And he immediately called Eduardo Strouch because they were friends, who was then 57 and living in Montevideo still. His belongings were returned to him. And Peña and Eduardo became very close friends. Oh, my God. That's adorable. Mm -hmm. And because of everything that they had found, all of these new artifacts, Ricardo Peña and a National Geographic writer, James Vlahos, secured a grant from National Geographic to do two expeditions. And this was and still is the only expedition to have ever repeated exactly Nando and Roberto's escape route from the Andes. Wow. There have been many attempts, but these are the only ones that have been successful. That's insane. Yeah. Professional mountain climbers. Yes. Yes. You can see pictures of this expedition on the website alpineexpeditions.net. And Ricardo Pena has led many of the survivors of the plane crash on expeditions back to the crash site over the years. My God, why? I don't know why you would want to go back. I don't. I don't know. Maybe maybe closure. I don't know. Closure. I guess that's where their friends are buried. Yeah, that's very true. Or, you know, a sense of like regaining some power agency like i'm back here on my terms right oh totally oh but yeah and uh, these expeditions are still happening today in fact there was one last month 
<laughs> My. And about these expeditions, the website reads, Join survivor Eduardo Strouch and mountain guide Ricardo Peña for another special visit to the crash site of the Fairchild. This expedition is full of adventure, beauty, and a wealth of information about the story of the Andes survivors. Participants will have the opportunity to see the stunning sights of this part of the Andes, to visit the memorial on the mountain, and see the airplane parts that are still there. To be at the amazing valley where one of history's most famous survival stories took place. All this is in the company of survivor Eduardo Strouch, who shares openly all the details of their ordeal and candidly answers all questions. Wow. Uh, mm-hmm. That's, wow, what an experience. <laughs> yes. And if you're interested in doing that, it's the trip cost $3,330. Okay. So I'll just go stand in my front yard. <laughs> <laughs> mm, and uh, that's what I know about Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571. Wow, that was horrific and incredible. And at the very end, I learned how to say Uruguayan. It, how, how long did it take me? A million <laughs> tries? I did it. But that's why we had to do this episode so many times. Right, 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 right. <laughs> <laughs> that was so great. Oh, oh these... These boys. They were truly, oh my God, incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like no survival skills were taught to them, right? Like this was all just them coming up with stuff and trying it. Oh my God. Hmm. Mm -mm -mm. Remembering back to Reader's Digest articles. (laughs) Right? Like, boy. All right, so I've got some recommendations if you want some further reading. I'm going to start with the stories that some of the survivors have written because it's their story. (laughs) So those are, you know, nonfiction. That's the ones you want to go to. The first is Miracle in the Andes, 72 Days on the Mountain and My Long Trek Home by Nido Parada, uh, written with Vince Rouse. And the blurb for this one is is uh, Nando Parada was unconscious for three days before he woke to discover that the plane carrying his rugby team to Chile had crashed deep in the Andes, killing many of his teammates, his mother, and his sister. Stranded. I know. It's so sad. I keep forgetting that. Part, I know. Uh, Stranded with the few remaining survivors on a lifeless glacier and thinking constantly of his father's grief, Parado resolved that he could not simply wait to die. So Parado, an ordinary young man with no particular disposition for leadership or heroism, led an expedition up the treacherous slopes of a snow-capped mountain and across 45 miles of frozen wilderness in an attempt to save his friends' lives as well as his own. Decades after the disaster, Parado tells his story with remarkable candor and depth of feeling. Miracle in the Andes, a first-person account of the crash and its aftermath, is more than a riveting tale of true life adventure. It is a revealing look at life at the edge of death and a meditation on the limitless redemptive power of love. Mm-hmm. So I use that a lot, too, in this episode. So it has a lot of really good information, of course, because it's from him. Yeah. And the next survivor to write a story was Roberto Canessa, and his book is called I Had to Survive, How a Plane Crash in the Andes Inspired My Calling to Save Lives, and that one is written with uh, Pablo Viercy. 
So Dr. Roberto Canessa recounts to his side of the famous 1972 plane crash in the Andean Mountains and how decades later, the harrowing journey to survive propelled him to become one of the world's leading pediatric cardiologists, seeing in his patients the same fierce will to live he witnessed in the Andes. As he tended to his wounded old Christian's teammates amidst the devastating carnage, rugby player Roberto Canessa, who was a second-year medical student at the time, realized that no one on earth was luckier. He was alive, and for that, he should be eternally grateful. As the starving group struggled beyond the limits of what seemed possible, Canessa played a key role in safeguarding his fellow survivors, eventually trekking with a companion across the hostile mountain range for help. Um, other, another book written by a survivor out of the silence after the crash by Eduardo Strouch, written by Maria Soriano. So Strouch talks about his experience and he also talks about revisiting the, you know, plane crash on his expedition Mm -hmm. and how surviving on the mountain in the face of its fierce, unforgiving power and desolate beauty forever altered his perception of love, friendship, death, fear, lost, and hope. And then I also mentioned earlier the book Alive, the story of Andy's survivors by Pierce Paul Reed, who was, it was the first one written in like 1973 or four. So like right after. How did he even gather the information that quickly? He apparently emailed, or not emailed, in 1973, oh he emailed them. <laughs> he well, interviewed them. how he's a time right? traveler. He's, exactly. He knew. <laughs> <laughs> he interviewed all of them extensively, and I believe they gave him permission to write their story at the time. Okay. So, it's a, I think it's okay. Okay. But I mean, when when you can, read the survivor's accounts first. Mm-hmm. So I do have some fiction recommendations that are kind of closely related a little bit, but not really. But the first is I Am Still Alive by Kate Alice Marshall. And Kate is one of my all-time favorite authors. I love everything I've ever read by her. She writes for children all the way through adults. She's just fantastic. This was her debut novel. It is a YA novel. And the blurb is, Jess is alone. Her cabin has been burned to the ground. She knows if she doesn't act fast, the cold will kill her before she has time to worry about food. But she is still alive. For now. Before, Jess hasn't seen her survivalist off-the-grid dad in over a decade. But after a car crash killed her mother and left her injured, she was forced to move to his cabin in the remote Canadian wilderness. Just as Jess was beginning to get to know him, a secret from his past paid them a visit, leaving her father dead and Jess stranded. With only her father's dog for company, Jess must... <laughs> She's catching... Pulled herself up on my leg. Oh, that's so painful. Oh, why are you like this? The kittens have been climbing me. It hurts so bad. Mm. With only her father's dog for company, Jess must forage and hunt for food, build shelter, and keep herself warm. Some days it feels like the wild is out to destroy her, but she's stronger than she ever imagined. Jess will survive. She has to. She knows who killed her father, and she wants revenge. (gasps) Yes. And if you're looking for something a little bit lighter, but that still kind of has a uh, survivalist vein to it, you could try Beauty Queens by Libba Bray. 
So this is a YA comedy satire. So it should be, you know, a nice little palate cleanser. (laughs) (laughs) So in this one, there's Teen Beauty Queens, A Lost Island, Mysteries and Dangers, and No Access to Email. And the spirit of fierce, feral competition that lives deep in the heart of every girl. A savage brutality that can only be revealed by a journey into the heart of non-exfoliated darkness. (laughs) When a plane crash strands 13 beauty beauty contestants on a mysterious island, they struggle to survive, to get along with one another, to combat the island's other diabolical occupants, and to learn their dance numbers in case they are rescued in time for competition. It sounds really funny. Yeah. There's some media. So there was a movie called Alive from um, 1993 based on the book by Pierce Paul Reed. But it very strangely stars Ethan Hawke as <laughs> Nando Parada. <laughs> Naturally. Why? Um, and casting. so it's, you know, it's pretty problematic because yeah. not only, you know, casting a white actor to play a, a Hispanic actor, but also not an actor, a Hispanic, but also because it left out like many of the survivors and essentially just kind of turned their tragedy into entertainment. So it exists, but don't recommend. So instead, I think I recommend the new movie Society of the Snow, which has been released on Netflix, is directed by J.A. Bayana, who also directed one of my all-time favorite horror movies, The Orphanage. It includes a cast of mostly newcomer actors, all Uruguayan and Argentine. It was recently selected as the Spanish entry for the Best International Feature Film at the 96th Academy Awards. It depicts the real-life events of the crash of Flight 571 from the day Uruguay's Old Christians Club rugby team left for a match in Santiago, Chile, to 72 days later, when only 16 of them finally came home. It's told primarily through rugby player Numa Tercati's point of view, which is kind of nice because we haven't really seen that before. And I do like that the filmmakers recorded more than 100 hours of interviews with all of the living survivors. The actors had contact with the survivors and the families of the victims. And it was partially filmed at the actual crash site. So they were like reliving it and in it. Not reliving it, but they were in it. I will say when I originally wrote this, this had not come out yet. But it has now come out. And instead of being subtitled, I think it's dubbed so in English. So if you are in America and you have American Netflix, it's dubbed. So, oh, so no. that might not be great. So if you know how to do the thing where you get like a, what is it called? I don't know. A different, like a not VP, a different server. Like a VPN. Yeah, a VPN and go to some other country's uh, Netflix. That might be a better if you just want subtitles i don't know uh-huh. and then there's also i am alive surviving the andes plane crash which was a made for tv documentary in partnership with the history channel and the only place i could find to watch that though is through the history vault which is a history channel subscription service but there is a free trial so if you want to watch it it's there it's based on nando parada's memoir and they interview him throughout the documentary and of course, Yellow Jackets, which <laughs> merges the Andy's crash with the Donner Party, with the supernatural, with female friendships and drama and mystery and murder and just a bunch of other fun stuff. And 
if you've watched Yellow Jackets, please talk to me so we can talk about it. Because <laughs> <laughs> season three supposedly comes out this year, but there's no date or anything. I think, you know, everyone's really behind because of the writer's strike, which thankfully oh, they've yeah. resolved. So I don't know when we'll get Yellow Jackets, but... <sighs> Worth the wait, I guess, for writers to get paid a fair wage. But like, <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's what I got. Great. <laughs> that's awesome. I'm so um, glad that they're finally out of the Andes. I know. Finally. My God, that took forever. Yeah. Oh. Okay, well. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Yeah. If you feel so inclined, please leave us a review and check out our Patreon. Yeah. And thank you so much for joining us. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Reference Desk. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash the reference desk. And if you're interested in purchasing any of the books we discussed today, visit our bookshop storefront at bookshop.org slash the reference desk pod. You can find us on Instagram at the reference desk pod. Visit our website at the reference or drop us an email at reference desk pod at gmail.com. This episode was written and produced by us. Our music is Say Salavi by Eric Harper, and our cover art for the show is by Maria Amaya. Until next week, we'll see you in the stacks.